Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, and so here we are um, with Billy Budd. Now, when I started this podcast almost two years ago, I started with Type P. I started with the first volume published by the Library of America and also the first novel published by, by Herman Melville. And I, from there, I went on to do other things. I looked at the Harm Renaissance. I looked at Willa Cather, looked at the Leather Stocking Tales. And you can go back through my... My collection. This is what episode two, two something, two forty something maybe. So I looked at a lot of different works, um, nonfiction, fiction from the twentieth century, from the nineteenth century, eighteenth uh, century even. We looked at Tom Paine and Charles Brockton Brown. So you know we looked at a lot of different things. Um, but you know when I decided when I went to China to to pursue a job opportunity, I, I brought I didn't bring didn't bring many that many books, but I did bring. The two remaining volumes of Melville's writings, prose writings anyways, published by the Library of America. Now they have one upcoming with his poetry writings, and we'll hopefully look at that in, at some point, um, if I can, can keep this going. But I did bring them. So I, I, of course, you remember I looked at Redburn and White Jacket, Moby Dick, and then I've been working through his later works, Pierre, Israel Potter, The Confidence Man, and now finally we get to, to Billy Budd. Um, the, his final final piece of prose fiction. Uh, so I'm really excited here to to kind of close this this chapter um, and move on to to something else. And what that something else will be, I'll talk about um, when I when I finish up with with my thoughts about about Billy Budd. Now this is a novel, of course, many of us have been exposed to in various formats. Maybe you had to read it uh, in school. It's it's a book that's commonly assigned because it's short. It's it's thematically rich. It's got um, a clear theme, but there's a lot of a lot of room for interpretation with different characters. So it's um, it, it feeds a lot of different interpretive needs, right? You have, uh, of course, the 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 queer studies have looked at Billy Budd in new ways in recent years. You have uh, the power dynamic on the ship. You have the character of the captain and and whether one has a duty to to duty or to morality to humanity. Uh, what about what? How do we interpret Billy Budd? And, and all these different characters are are rich and and are conflicted. What we what sense we can make of them? So maybe you read it in in school. Maybe you read or maybe you came across the opera the, by Benjamin Britten, the opera Billy Billy Budd. Or maybe you looked at watched the movie, the nineteen sixty two movie. Um, maybe you saw a play. I mean, maybe you listened to an abridged audiobook version, which I know there are some of those. So who knows how you came across this, but there's a good chance you, you came across Billy Budd, or at least you know what Billy Budd is. Um, it's a very uh, straightforward story. It's about a, a young sailor who's been impressed into the British Army during the, the wars against the French Revolution, the days of Nelson, uh, the kind of the epic, the, the heroic age of the, of the Age of Sail, heroic period of the Age of Sail. Um, now there's rumors of mutinies and there have been some mutinies in the British Navy so everyone's kind of awareness of mutiny is, is up uh, this new this impressed sailor Billy Budd transfers to another ship on that ship he uh, catches the eye of the master at arms who has some issue with him he bullies him this bullying eventually leads to him being accused of being part of a mutiny which he's totally innocent of uh, it's Unable to defend himself verbally because of a, a very bad stutter, Billy Budd strikes his this bully, um, but the strike the blow is hard enough to to kill him instantly. And then the captain, who knows that Billy Budd is innocent of of being a mutineer, and he was put in this position partially because of the captain's own insistence that Billy Budd defend himself. Uh, nevertheless, to prevent mutiny and to maintain the rule of law uh, on the ship, he pursues an immediate uh, court on the ship leading to the, the execution of Billy Budd. And then Billy Budd becomes kind of uh, interpreted in history. Uh, there's like a little history within the story where Billy Budd's memory is interpreted in different ways by the state and by the, by the sailors. So that's the essential story of Billy Budd. You probably know it. it it's very much a story of, of justice, uh, about capital punishment. If you're interested in the theme of capital punishment, this is, of course, a book uh, we can look to. It's not the first time we looked at capital punishment in this series, of course. We've we probably looked at it most uh, directly with An American Tragedy by Theodore Dreiser. Based on, that one was based on a true story, of course.
So um, the, the history of Billy Budd is that um, Melville started writing in 1888 and, and finished it mostly what we have was finished by 1889. Um, now, he dies in 1891, um, and Billy Budd was basically in a, in a somewhat complete manuscript, although there's some, like the name of the ship is different, and there's some maybe holes. It wasn't fully polished, but it it's done enough that, that it can be read, and, and it could have been published with some slight editing. And But that publication didn't take place until many years later. It took place in 1924, uh, at the beginning of like this Melville revival, when interest in Melville, you know, increased sometime after he died, um, so it's it's posthumously published. It's one of just a handful of works that he published possibly. Most of the other works that were published after his death were poems. Uh, this is the only prose work that, 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 as far as I know. Oh, there was a few stories. We looked at those stories already, though. But um, this was the main work that came out after his his death. 1924 was a publication date, but written mostly in the 1880s, and it tell, talks about a period about a century earlier. So it's set in, in 1797, which is before um, Napoleon becomes emperor. So I don't know if we can call it the Napoleonic Wars yet, but there's certainly, you know, the series of wars fought between England and France during the epoch of the French Revolution. So that's an important context of, of the story. All right, so um, that's, that's my introduction to... To Billy Budd. Now, it's a very, very short book. It's in the Library of America version. It's it's actually only about eighty pages, um, so it's actually it doesn't even qualify for a full episode in this rubric I've been following in this podcast. But I always cheat, as you know. So, um, and and it's got thirty chapters. So a lot of these chapters are essentially just one page or two pages. But um, you know, each chapter is kind of a beat. And, and contribute something important. But I think we can zip through these fairly quickly and then get to the real um, meat of the story. All right, so the, the story opens in chapter one. We're introduced right away to, to the handsome sailor. Billy Budd is often called the handsome sailor. And he has been impressed, and he was serving on a ship called the Rights of Man. Uh, a British ship called the Rights of Man is a bit ironic in this context because... Uh, Thomas Paine, who wrote The Rights of Man, the book The Rights of Man, wrote it in defense of the French Revolution. So um, it's that a British ship would be, you know, projecting the rights of man, not the rights of Englishmen, but the rights of man, and kind of almost siding with the French Revolution is significant. And he moved from a ship called The Rights of Man, basically transferred to a ship called The Indomitable. And The Indomitable has a, a very, very different connotation, right, of the kind of you know, an unmoving object, right? Indomitable, cannot be moved, cannot be flexible. Not, it's not flexible, unlike the concept of rights, which is open, it's generous, it, it's flexible, it considers, um, in terms of justice, it tends to consider the full picture and doesn't just follow the law, right? So now there's a kind of a, in the beginning, there's, now Billy Budd's often misinterpreted, and right away we learn early on that he's a bit misinterpreted, and partially because he attracts so much attention because he is the handsome sailor. He's talked about again and again as beautiful. He's compared to Adam. He's compared to um, gods at various times. He's incredibly. He's almost like a almost a noble savage, and I'm going to get to that a little bit in here. He's almost like in the state of nature, and. Um, and that, you know, in, in everything, even how he accepts his fate at the end, it's kind of he, he accepts it with kind of a stoic naturalism, like just like this is what fate has in store with me. It, his response to being executed is not what we might expect. Um, and that seems to come out in part from his his position as, a, I don't want to say a child, but uh, kind of like a, almost like a savage. I'm reminded all the time of like Taipei, right? And the idea that you have the... the conflict between the idyllic society and the Marquesas where people are beautiful, people uh, have a certain nobility, trustworthiness, there, there's a certain honor in that, but it's, it's, it's detached from civilization, right? And then you have civilization coming in with its guns and soldiers and missionaries, and it corrupts that and destroys it, right? We talked about that all with um, the novels like Omu and, and especially Taipei. So, um, He's presented really as this sort of state of nature character is the point I'm trying to make. 
And we see how he's kind of misunderstood, maybe a bit out of na naivete. When he leaves the rights of man, when the transfer is made, he says, and goodbye to you, old rights of man, which, of course, you can take it as just as, as probably we should read it as what he's doing is just saying goodbye to his ship. Right. But it gets taken as, you know, I'm turning my back on, on rights. Right. And, and kind of turning my back on this this tradition of, of rights of man advocated by the French in their their revolution. And he gets scolded for for doing this. But, you know, is he kind of a radical is right away a misinterpretation of, of him. And that's going to kind of, he's going to carry that with him throughout the story as the question is in the air of whether he's a potential mutineer or could he be recruited to be a mutineer? Is he trustworthy? What is his true objective? Um, even though we, we know from the narrator and from his actions that he's just, he's just a guy, right? And a lot of what's happening to him is just being projected on top, onto him by by others due to his his physical beauty. Oh, sorry. The the Library of America version. There's different editions of, of Billy Budd, of course, because it was left in manuscript. Um, mostly, when you when you read this, when you listen to audiobooks, you get the Indomitable. Um, I think that's what Britain uses too. The Indomitable is the name of the ship. Uh, in fact, just to correct myself, the the Bella Potent is the name used used here for the ship. It has the same kind of uh, feeling as as the indomitable so i don't know i may slip back but i'm i'm used to thinking about this this ship is the indomitable so he enters the indomitable and the the key issue with i guess his disability he, he's he's a strong man he can do his job he doesn't have any faults as a sailor in fact the captain at one point thinks he's going to promote him but his problem is he stutters particularly when under stress um and throughout chapter two, he's described like at one point as an upright barbarian, one point described as as Adam. And we're reminded again and again that he's attracting the gaze of of these other sailors. And so there there is we're, we're going to have to say a little bit about this more. But there's one reason that queer studies have kind of gravitated to this this work. Right now, it's a trite of a trope of Melville's works all the way back from Type P of this this um this homosexual appreciation of, of beauty in men by men, right? And we can go, you know, and suggest that maybe Melville was a closeted homosexual. Uh, maybe there's stuff going on in ships that cultivate these kinds of attitudes. I don't know really how to interpret it, and I haven't read much of the stuff that tries to take this angle with it. But this work is a lot stronger, especially with the, the character that, that leads to Billy Budd's downfall. There seems to be an obsession with with Billy Butt's physical attributes. Um, just to quote a bit, though our handsome sailor has as much of masculine beauty as one can expect anywhere to see, never, nevertheless, the beautiful women in one of Hawthorne's minor tales, there was just one thing amiss in him. No visible blemish indeed, as with the ladies, no, but an occasional liability to the vocal defect. End quote. So this is talking about his stutter, but he, he's compared directly here with... Um, I think the birthmark is the story of Hawthorne that he's referring to. Or if you remember that story, I didn't talk about it on this podcast yet, obviously. But that's uh, a man marries this woman who's gorgeous, perfect, flawless, except for one little birthmark. And then the the man who happens to be a physician is trying to use chemicals to erase the birthmark and, and ends up killing the the wife, killing the whole body. Um, now, Melville here writes, or the narrator writes, the avowal of such an imperfection in the handsome sailor should be evidence not alone that he is not presented as a conventional hero, but also that the story in which he is the main figure is no romance. Right? So we're told right away that it's going to be a tragic story, that it's, it's not going to end up well, and that he's not a, a, a hero in the normal sense. His flaw kind of makes it impossible for him to be the traditional um, storybook hero. So then we move into some of the broader context um, of, of Billy Butt's transfer to the Indomitable, and that, of course, is wartime. Um, and during the fight against France, there has been many mutinies across the British fleet, in particular, a couple notable ones. And, you know, 
where does this come from? And the narrator actually says this isn't coming from like anti-English sentiment or treason, really. It's coming out of legitimate protest to conditions on ships, which is, of course, something that Melville was very, very concerned with. The book White Jacket is almost all about the poor conditions on American naval ships. And, and certainly whatever was true of the Americans was equally true of the British. In fact, even in White Jacket, he talks about how the British situation was, was even worse. Right. Um, in fact, he, the narrator here suggests that the mutineers, even the mutineers, found glory and 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 praise for the battles of, of Nelson. Right. And Nelson is a figure that that even the mutineers look for, look to, to with with pride and, and as a hero. So it's not unpatriot. It's not non. It's not patriotism that's it's lacking here. It's just poor conditions on the ship. That's causing it. But, of course, from the command's point of view, this is a general sentiment of, of hostility to the British war effort, right? And so it has to be stamped out. And so right away we're told there's going to be no toleration for, for, for mutiny. Um, and the mention of Nelson in Chapter 4 allows Melville then to go into a discussion about the heroic age of sail, the, or the heroic period of the age of sail, the late 19th or late 18th early 20th sorry i keep i botched that again the late 18th early 19th century especially specifically the hero the heroism of nelson who is this kind of glorious captain with this with this uh you know wonderful imagery just as uh, the heroic figure at, at sea and, and chapter four gets all into that in in wilson even at some point he compares him to wellington who didn't die in battle. Nelson did, um, and maybe Nelson didn't have to, right? But it's part of his character, part of his image, was that he was the kind of person who jumped, you know, in the forefront of battle and, and was on the deck and didn't hide below quarters or whatever. Quote at Trafalgar, Nelson, on the brink of opening the fight, sat down and wrote his last brief will and testament. If under the presentment of the most magnificent of all victories to be crowned by his own glorious death the sort of priestly motive led him to dress his person in the jeweled vouchers of his own shipping shining deeds if thus to have adorned himself for the altar and the sacrifice was indeed vainglory then affection and fustism is in each more heroic line than the great epics and dramas um, and what Melville's doing here is then of course creating this another sacrifice if Nelson was sacrificed, you know, and I, I suppose we could, to some degree, there's an inflating of, of what really happened at Trafalgar. Did well, Nelson wake up thinking he was going to die and prepared for that? You know, I suppose all soldiers, to some degree, have to prepare for that every day. But, um, you know, but that's, a, that's presented here as a sacrifice. And, and Billy Bud's another sacrifice that we're going to have to face. And it's, it's, his memory is so different. I think that's the key. Nelson will be praised both by the command and by the sailors. Billy Budd's remembrance will be bifurcated. And I think that's such an important point of this, of this tale. In, in chapter five, Melville talks about the, the mutiny on the Nore and this, this particular mutiny that's on everyone's mind and how these mutinies were put down. Um, I think there was a couple actually referred to. But in, in one of the cases, actually, Nelson himself was sent to one of the mutinous ships. So I, I think here the, the point Melville wants to keep making in these early chapters, talking about the context of mutiny, you know, it's such a short book, and he, he, he spends a significant amount of time on this question. It's, it's because he wants to really press forth that, that the soldiers were by and large loyal to Britain. Right, that's going to be such a big theme of from the captain's point of view is, am I loyal to humanity? Is that what we're here for? Are we here for some kind of um, a struggle for a better world? Or are we here to serve the king and to do what the king asks? And he asks this question directly to the other officers. And the answer is, you know, we're not here for anything besides fulfilling the king's wishes. Um, but uh, anyways, Nelson is set to one of the mutinous ships and actually kind of uh, it, gets, it shapes it up. So um, in chapter six, we get the example of a, of a, of a very different captain than Nelson, um, Edward Fairfax Veer. This is the captain of the, of 
the Belaponte, the Indomitable. Now, there's been no mutiny on this ship, so it seems to be running well. Um, Veer is presented as very honest. He's presented as very uh, patriotic captain. He's very much believes in duty. He's rose through through service. He's not a, a product of nepotism. Like remember, Melville had all these horrible captains in white jacket. He makes sure Veer here is not one of these horrible captains who's just there because of who his father was or because someone you know bought the commission or or just because he was pushed up the ranks. He he earned his commission through service and duty. He's a strict uh, disciplinarian as well. And in chapter seven, the the description of Veer is continued with Melville pointing out how Veer is a conservative uh, politically, me, you know, kind of of the Burkean stripe. So he is opposed to the French Revolution on principle. He's opposed to, uh, so I guess he would believe in the Burkean idea of inherited rights. Uh, so he it is different than the rights of man. He would never serve on a ship called the rights of man because he essentially disagrees with that. Now, if you don't remember from your history class, and this is just how I understand it. The, con the debate between Burke and Thomas Paine at the time of the French Revolution, of course, the rights of man had already been written by, by 1797, is that Burke believed rights are inherited. So this is why the American Revolution was good, because rights are something you inherit from previous generations. It's not something that can just be granted to people willy-nilly universally, right? So it's something you get through the traditions and through your institutions, right? So the concept of rights or liberties has to be grounded in institutions that we inherit and grow up in. What they might be intellectual traditions or actual political institutions, legal systems or whatever. Um, now the American Revolution was okay because they, the Americans inherited the, the traditions from the British, right? But the French here, they didn't have that tradition. They have no tradition in Burke's mind of, of liberty. And so they're just trying to jump to that without having inherited it, not having kind of earned it. Now, Thomas Paine, his response is simply, that's nonsense. Rights are universal. We all have access to them. And, and that, that, that's a claim they just need to make. You just need to claim those rights. And then from their point, create governments that, that fulfill those rights. And of course, Mary Wollstonecraft also wrote her defense of the French Revolution. Um, Veer here is, no, he's a traditionalist. He's a conservative. Um, he even like doesn't like literature. He doesn't like fiction. He's drawn us into history or biography or, you know, works that, that talk about the value of social order and tradition. And then in chapter eight, we meet our, our, our next character, um, John Claggett, who is the master of arms. And actually, it's, we get a little interesting history here about the changing role of the master of arms. You know, back in the feudal age, the master of arms was the one who taught people, you know, how to use weapons like in a castle the castle master of arms would be the swords of men and who train the guards and things on how to use swords now the ship the master of arms would be the one who trained sailors and how to use cutlasses and how to fight hand to hand but in the era of cannons and muskets that's less important so what does the master of arms become well he becomes essentially the policeman on board the ship now claggett he's of a, kind of an unknown origin he seems to have an accent uh, but through patriotic service, deference to authority, he moves his way up. And he's comparable to Veer, I think, in that both seem to move up through the proper channels. Neither are corrupt figures, but Veer is, is still moral, and Claggett is, is amoral. He's going to be the real antagonist for Billy Budd. Now, this movie, the story moves along so quickly that there's not really time for attention to build up. Here with it, I mean, we jump right to the introduction to Claggett to his conflict with with Billy Button, um, but you know he is presented here as someone who does move his way up the ranks in the in the proper way. Now he's of course a key figure in because he's like essentially the police officer on board the ship. He's going to be really the front lines of this fight against mutiny. It's going to be his job to keep an eye on for mutiny to know if sailors are thinking about mutiny or if they're spreading rumors about mutiny or whatever. So um, with this, with these eight, first eight chapters, we get kind of the setting and the characters out of the way, and we can kind of move on to the real plot. And that begins really on chapter nine. I, so Billy Budd immediately, he's, he's a very conflict-adverse kind of guy, and he, he's just, again, he's so innocent and, and kind of pure that he just, 
has no really interest in turning the cart to change in anything. He's actually the last person on board this ship you'd think would start a mutiny, except for maybe the captain. Um, in fact, early on, while he's on the ship, he sees a flogging. And I don't know if he didn't see floggings in the rights of man. Apparently not. But he saw it, and he kind of vows never to cause any trouble on board the ship. Now, still, though, he does you know, seem to be scolded all the time for minor infractions. And, and he doesn't really understand why. And it turns out that this is really Claggett's doing. Claggett is, is picking on him. It seems partially because of a sexual attraction or just an overall fascination with Billy Budd and an obsession with Billy Budd. And essentially, Claggett becomes a bully to Billy Budd, and that leads us to the, the you know, the, the peak conflict in the, in the story between the two. As essentially, it's a, it's a bully. And, you know, given the, the discussion now about bullying, I think we can look at Billy Budd also as a story about bullying, the same way I looked at um, House Behind the Cedars. You know, if we look at this novel now, it's hard not to see it as a novel about sexual harassment, to some degree, especially the later half of that novel. So, you know, our current concerns can kind of inform how we read these works. And I think that's the case here. So um, he goes to this guy called um, Dansker. Dansker, an old tar, an old British tar who actually had served with Nelson in a previous day. And he, he basically asked for help from, from this guy, Danska and Dank, Danksker. And Donsker tells Billy Budd that, that Claggett has had it out for him and is kind of obsessed with him. And, and he, he somehow, he knows that Claggett sees him as charming. And Billy Budd's really confused by this. Again, he's very naive and he doesn't understand why, if Claggett seems to like him or have a fascination with him, why does this coming off in this hostility, right? It's almost like, you know, how, you know, when you're, you know, little teenage, like, I guess younger than teenagers, like grade school boys, right? They're, they're interested in a girl and they're like, you know, pull their hair or something. <laughs> um, it's almost that petty at times, at least at this stage of, of the story. Um, in chapter, I think it's in 10. Yeah, 10 is the first major confrontation between Claggett and Billy Budd. And it's something very simple. It's just Billy Budd accidentally spills some soup in Claggett's like, presence. And Claggett's response here is very um, ambiguous and awkward. It's not like he's not being punished, but he's also not being fully forgiven it, it again it really confuses a character like billy budd and he doesn't really know how he can deal and it does seem that billy budd's beauty is triggering claggett again and again and and leading to this this conflict in fact the narrator right asked the question in the end of chapter 11 what was the matter with the master of arms and be the matter what it might how could it have a direct relation with billy budd with whom the prior to the affair of the spilled soup he had never come into any special contact, official or otherwise. So it's really, I like how the narrator here, and Melville does this in a lot of his other works too, you know, the narrator comes in and, and you know, speaks to us with our same question, the question we're having, and gives some kind of context for it. And then in chapter 12 and 13 are essentially the narrator playing with different ways in which this obsession of Claggett towards Billy Butt is, is manifest and how it manifests into different types of bullying or obsessions or you know, pressure putting on him. And and there's not a single answer given. That's it's, it's, a, it's a fun section to read and there's a lot we can maybe interpret and depending on what you want to, where you want to find the origin of Claggett's hostility towards, towards Billy Bud, you can you can find evidence of it in this section. But here's a bit of it. If Escanze, he... okay, Claggart's envy struck deeper. If Escanze eyed the good looks, cheery health, and frank enjoyment of young life in Billy Budd, it was because these went along with the nature that, as Claggett magnetically felt, had in its simplicity never willed malice or experienced the reactionary bite of the serpent. To him, the spirit lodged within Billy, and looking out from his welkin eyes as if from windows, that ineffability in which made the dimple in his dyed cheek suppled his joints. And dancing in his yellow curves made him preeminently the handsome sailor. One person accepted the master at arms was perhaps the only man on the ship intellectually capable of adequately appreciating the moral phenomenon presented in Billy Budd. And the insight but intensified his passion, which assuming various secret forms within him, and at times assumed that of cynic disdain, disdain of innocence, to be nothing more than innocent. Yet in an aesthetic way he saw the charm of it, the courage, free and easy temper of it, and the fame would have shared it, but he just but he despised of it. 
end quote. So envy mixed up with uh, a discomfort with kind of the innocence, uh, a feeling of passion on top of that. Um, it's all mixed up and it's, it's very emotionally complex and there's so much uh, that I suppose one could pull up from there. But I just urge you to read those chapters yourself and, and, and come to your own conclusion. I don't want to kind of narrow, 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 nail anything down because I don't think Melville himself does. Um, in chapter 14, things start to, to really pick up where a man tries to recruit Billy Budd into a potential mutiny. And Billy Budd immediately resists this, this talk, but he doesn't like turn in the, the sailor who is trying to convert him. He, he instead goes to Darkster, this old, old tar who has helped him out before, and he suggests to Billy Budd that maybe this man is working for Claggett. And again, we just see Billy Budd's innocence. Like, why would the Master at Arms... You know, try to entrap me into partaking in a mutiny. It doesn't make any sense to him because he just doesn't understand Claggett's intentions. And we're maybe he's as confused as we are, probably even more so. Um, why would he be trying to get one of his sailors into trouble? And that's that's mostly what Chapter Fifteen is about: is just Billy Bud's um, intense frustration at at the the situation he's in with with Claggett. So when we get to Chapter Seventeen. Um, Claggart starts to change his behavior towards Billy Budd, and, and Melville even writes that he starts to have this yearning expression towards towards Billy Budd. Um, the obsession is simply increasing. And then in chapter 18, Claggart goes straight to Veer and suggests that Billy Budd is a suspicious sailor who may desire to form in a mutiny. Now this Veer is confused about because Veer is actually like slating Billy Budd for some kind of promotion because he's such an effective sailor and everyone likes him. And but Claggart says, no, 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 this is all part of the scam. Billy Butt is deep, deep undercover. He's he's planning deep down this mutiny. So he he doubts Claggart and, and Veer seems to always know that that there's something weird about Claggart's obsession about Billy Butt. But this is also the first he's really heard of it. So he's just kind of confused by this. Um, so in Chapter 19, Claggart um, kind of reintroduces his attacks in person, and now he brings Billy Budd before the captain directly. So it's the three of them in the room together, in the cabin, and he says, "You know, this guy is, you know, planning mutiny." And the captain says, "Now defend yourself, Billy Budd." And Billy Budd tries to say what he wants to say—that he doesn't have anything to do with this. He's of course very confused and frustrated and upset, and he starts to stutter, unable to really express himself, and the captain keeps saying, well, defend yourself, boy, something like that. And then Billy Budd then turns and just socks um, Claggart, this being the only way he can defend himself in his honor. And in Chapter 20, we learn that Claggart was killed by this blow, right? So it was a one blow struck in anger. Obviously, he wasn't trying to kill Claggart, but the, the blow does kill Claggart. So we have a dead officer, a dead master of arms, a sailor who did a mutinous act, a disloyal act, an, a, an act that, that carries with it the death penalty on the ship. And so Veer then has no choice but to call a court, um, which was going to decide the fate. Now, there's a debate given between captain, and at least internally with the surgeon, and I think some of the other officers also begin to question, you know, why do we have to do this? You know, Billy Budd's not a threat. He's not, it's not an act immune. He doesn't have his gun out or something or a knife out. He's not, he's apparently innocent of the mutiny charges. So why can't they just wait till they can convene a regular court with the admirals and the admirals can hear the whole case? And Veer, though, really says, no, this has to be decided at sea because he's, again, got this obsession with this wave of mutiny coming through the British Navy. So he thinks this has to be taken care of and it's really his duty to deal with this and it can't be delayed, right? It's something that has to be handled right away. And so this is where the narrative literally becomes insane according to the narrator chapter 21 opens with who in the rainbow can draw the line where the violet tint ends and the orange tint begins distinctly we see the difference in colors but where exactly does the one first blendingly enter into the other so is sanity and insanity in pronounced cases there's no question about them but in some cases at various degrees supposedly less pronounced to draw the exact line of demarcation few will undertake though for a fee becoming Considerate, some professional expert will. There is nothing namable but that some men will or undertake to do it for pay. 
Whether Captain Veer, as a surgeon professionally and private surmised, was really the sudden victim of any degree of aberration, everyone must determine for himself by such light as this narrative may afford. End quote. So the narrator opens up the question of, of Veer's you know, objectivity or sanity or, or rationality at this moment of deciding immediately that there has to be a trial to, to judge the, the guilt of, of Billy Bud. And chapter 21 is, I think it's the longest chapter in the whole story. And um, it's a trial. It's, it's essentially a trial. It's a very ad hoc trial where the officers are brought up as essentially the... There's really no jury, right? It's Veer's decision at the end. But there are witnesses to the trial and evidence is heard and there's debate back and forth. And some of the officers, I think one like the, the head of the Marine unit... On the, on the ship says like, you know, obviously he was a mutineer, it wasn't on purpose, so there's no reason he has to be executed. But Veer pushes for a judgment against him. The evidence is pretty clear and Billy Budd doesn't deny striking Claggett. He tries to explain why, but Veer then quickly after hearing the evidence, and it's a very, very quick trial, I think we're told it's only like a one hour Veer comes to the decision with the officers and he kind of sets the officers aside and says, we got to make a decision here. Do we serve the king or do we serve nature? And maybe natural law, the rights of man, whatever, would say Billy Budd is just. But we have a duty to the king and the king's law and the king's fighting for survival in this war. And the nation or the state is, right? Nation is not even used here, but the word state is used. So it's, it's, is, do we have a duty to conscience or is it about conscience or duty? And really it's irrelevant what Billy Budd's motives were. Under the Mutiny Act, there's no provision for, for motive, right? If a, if a sailor kills a, a superior officer, they have to be put to death. The Mutiny Act is very clear on this. And he feels he can't be a coward and he can't be presented as a coward to the crew. Um, and if there is a mutiny on board, that's part of the overhang here, is there's a belief among many of these officers, and maybe perhaps the captain, that there is an act of mutiny. Whether Billy Budd is part of it or not is irrelevant to the fact that they have put a strong face against the mutiny. Um, and in fact, um, Bevel gives an aside here about a mutiny in, in 1842. And that was a, a U.S. brig, brig that executed a couple sailors for planning a mutiny in peacetime where they weren't that far from home. So they could have gone to the Admiralty and had the, it decided there, but they still went through it and they were judged to be fair, right? So the narrator here is not saying Veer is wrong in terms of his duty and the letter of the law. It, it's, it's the, you know, and depending on how you read this, you might, you know, you're meant to at least ponder of your side it's it's not a straight up anti-death penalty story it's more of a straight it's more of a tragedy really um and then at the end of chapter 21 billy Budd is sentenced to die now chapter 22 is one of the most interesting in the whole book because it's the narrator could go into this room but he doesn't it's like he doesn't want to see it and he hides it from us but he just says what happens here what must have happened here so basically what happens is you know billy Budd is of course in you know, an iron somewhere, and the captain comes in to say you're going to be you're going to be executed tomorrow morning, and we're told by the narrator that this that because he's the captain could be Billy Budd's father in terms of age, um, and I don't know that we can go farther with this if you want because Billy Budd doesn't have a father. He's talked about basically as a product of nature. He doesn't really have a family at all, any heritage. And it is presented as a father relationship. So it's essentially the father having to tell the son, you must be killed. And there's, of course, a very clear biblical example of that, of um, Abraham, right? And of course, in the Abraham story, God stays Abraham's hand, but he does intend to, to murder his son uh, to satisfy God's, God's wishes, God's will. But it's a really fascinating little chapter. Chapter 23 is just about the gossip among the crew as news gets out about Billy Budd's fate. Um, and in chapter 24, Billy Budd then faces his death really like a noble savage. He has the same innocence. Uh, he doesn't seem frightened. He seems to be aware of his death, but it's not, 
he's not yelling and screaming and, and frustrated. He just sort of faces it. He, he's such a kind of sad, faded character throughout the, the whole story. It's, it's, it's kind of uh, a bleak view of just someone. I don't, you don't even want to say he gives up. It's just he's maybe so angelic. And, and Melville paints him in such an angelic way that any of these kind of overwrought emotions don't fit his, his character, or at least the image that Melville's trying to draw of him. The chaplain here can do little. The chaplain does not believe in Billy Butt's guilt, but it's, again, you know, religion must serve the state, as does all officers. So he's also a servant of the state. So in chapter um, 25, we have the actual execution. It it's, takes place at 4 a.m. All the sailors are brought up. And the last words of Billy Budd are basically, God bless the captain. God bless Captain Veer. And that's the, and the final image we get of the dead Billy Budd is, again, like straight out of like a biblical, angelic, like an angelic sacrifice. Quote, the hull deliberately recovering from the periodic roll to leeward was just regaining an even keel when the last signal, a pre- concertated dumb one was given. In the final moment, it chanced that the vapory fleece hanging low in the east was shot through with a soft glory as of the fleece of the Lamb of God seen in mystical visions and simultaneously therewith watched by the wedged mass of upturned faces. Billy ascended and ascending took the full rose of the dawn. In the peonied figure arrived at the yard end to the wonder of, of all, no motion was apparent, none save that created by the slow roll of the hull of the moderate weather, so majestic in the great ship, ponderously cannoned. That's how chapter 25 ends. And chapter 26 then takes this aspect that he doesn't like have any spasms and doesn't jerk around like sometimes, you know, I mean, I've never seen someone hung, but, you know, you're supposed to kind of twitch or something, I guess. Billy Butt doesn't do that. And then there's a debate between the surgeon and like the purser, like the accounts guy on the ship. And the purser says, you know, it must be Billy Butt's will that, you know, that he didn't want it to go out this way. And the surgeon says, well, no, this is just, you know, it's not will. It's just, it's an involuntary motion and it may or may not happen. It has nothing to do with will. Billy Butt's dead. Uh, this, we kind of get this biblical imagery and this kind of image of sacrifice and the Lamb of God and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the white clouds and mist. And then it just is replaced with this cold scientific detachment by these characters. Um, but the, the question of willpower versus involuntary action is very key because in a way we could argue that none of these characters have any willpower. They don't have any agency. They're just doing what they must do. It's just the... The, the grinding wheel of justice. Um, chapter 27, the, this is the end of the scene and the men disperse. Um, and then that's, that's the story essentially and the last three chapters are just epilogue. Um, we learn that Captain Veer dies very shortly after in a battle. His final words are Billy Budd's name. And then we get two remembrances of Billy Budd. The first is the official report that remembers Billy Butt as a mutineer who actually had like a knife and was threatening other people and was punished, you know, to do this. So his memory gets used by the state to prevent other mutinies, right? So they don't tell the truth about what happened to Billy Butt because he's useful as an as a example of what not to be um, for in the fleet. However, the myth of Billy Butt's true character and innocence is fulfilled by the sailors. And I love that this is the final words of, of Melville because that's so much key throughout so many of his works, especially a sea fiction, is just the different worlds in which the, the officers are in versus the common sailors and that, that conflict, that tension between these two and how there is a, a life. Just like even back in Moby Dick, right, where you had Ahab with his plans and Starbuck with his plans and then the crew, you know, interacting together, the international crew. And that's so key to a lot of Melville's writing, and that's how he, he ends this, with two different memories of Billy Budd being conveyed uh, through the fleet, one from the top down and one from the bottom up. So I, I really love that aspect of, of the story. So what can we say about um, Billy Budd? Well, um, certainly we have a, the, this tension between kind of will and versus duty, or the rights of man versus the indomitable or the, the, the Bella Ponte. 
the conflict between a um, kind of justice and conscience versus versus duty and and the path of duty just leads to this these kind of inevitable um, single directional paths that we can take um, I don't know if right gets is broader I mean Melville doesn't go that far but he does see that you know the the path of the indomitable a veer's path this conservative path does lead to a single solution there's really no other path for that and on another ship who knows what billy butt's fate fate could have been um there's of course the whole theme of impressment and naval discipline which is something melville was very very interested in if you reread white jacket he's obsessed with the, the the theme of naval discipline of course in that case you don't have impressment such a big issue that was more of the british navy but impressment of course was the, the conscription of merchant seamen into the navy um, when they were needed. Um, the Melville's suspicion of, of, of Christian institutions, which we saw all the way back into Taipei, is still here in, when he wrote this in 1888 and 1889. Uh, we have a lot of Christian symbolism, everything from Billy Budd being compared to Adam, to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the, the Abraham stuff. But also we see the church as being very impotent in, in fulfilling its duty to conscience and, and God's law. Um, Billy Budd is essentially murdered by, by the powers that be, and the, and the chaplain can only pray for him uh, and not do much. He, he's a servant of the state, and the church has become a servant of the state. Um, now, one thing we can see here is with Billy Budd's innocence versus kind of Claggart's uh, evil, right? He's Clyde gets driven by desire. He's driven by jealousy and envy. None of which are things that Billy Budd's even capable of really feeling in the way he's presented here. And here we have, of course, the tension between the civility and savagery, which again goes all the way back to Taipei. I mean, that's that's the theme of that story, is the corruption of of the savage, of the noble savage by by empire, right? So here the colonial idea is just kind of reworked. In this case, Billy Budd is the is the colonial subject, and Clygard is the the evil empire, and, and Veer is is kind of an adjunct to that, of course. Veer is very interesting interpret as well. You know, the fact that he you can see the narrator on his side from time to time. You also see the narrator questioning his commitment to duty, but he does follow the rules. He does do his duty um, as he understands it. Right. He also does seem to be punished for his actions. He he dies shortly after. He feels anguish at the death of Billy Budd. So it's not that he gets way scot free for what he does. So if you want to see it as a morality tale about, you know, standing up for virtue and conscience instead of the rule of law, you can read it that way and you can focus on Veer's punishment. But the narrator doesn't ever say, you know, Veer is a really bad guy. Um and then finally, I think we should at least mention, you know, the, the whole theme of homosexual desire, which runs through this entire story. Um, Billy Budd is universally loved by the crew. Uh, we have Claggart, though. His, his love or obsession with Billy Budd is perverted and, and filled with repressed desire, right? The rest of the crew can openly admit their fondness for Billy Budd and their appreciation for his, his beauty, his character, his innocence. Claggart can only feel resentment, right? So is is he kind of um, a repressed desire? And the result of this repressed desire is um, is the is the bullying that that leads Billy Budd to his to his fate. Um, so that's what I think there is to say about about Billy Budd. Um, obviously, there's probably a lot more that could be said. Um, we could talk about this book quite a lot so i urge you to jump in with your own thoughts about billy Budd. let me know what you think is there anything i, I didn't say enough about is there any interpretations or ideas or characters or or i you know just points of view that i didn't address anything should be addressed please let me know you can just post it below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com um so what is coming up ahead well, there's going to be a little bit of a break. I don't know when I'm going to upload this, but there may be a little break. I'll just probably be uploading Philip Dick stuff for a while. I have quite a few episodes in the can of the Philip K. Dick Book Club, which I, I can put up. Um, the problem is I'm in China. I'll be going to Taiwan in, in a week or so, and then I'll be able to go back to my collection of Library of America books and choose a selection 
that I'll want to read. My, my thinking now is I want to look at um, American political writing, maybe some economic writing too. I have a lot to choose from actually. I, I have um, two volumes of the John Adams. I got Hamilton. I have Jefferson, Tocqueville, Lincoln, Franklin. I think I even have Marshall, uh, the Supreme Court Justice. And I'd like to look at John Kenneth Galbraith at some point. Um, so, um, but I think, I don't know how many of them I'm going to look at in one gulp, but I'm thinking of a series on political and e economic writings uh, in American history would, would be a nice change of pace from the novels I, I've been, been looking at. So I don't quite know what I'm going to pick, though. Um, certainly I'll, I'll do Tocqueville. Um, I've been meaning to do Tocqueville for a long time, and it's been on my mind. So I'll, I'll definitely look at that. But around that, I'll, I, may, I may do Lincoln, uh, Hamilton, and at some point, John Kenneth Galbraith. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll choose a selection and, and lay them out chronologically and kind of make a nice little series. That's what I'm thinking. But if anyone has any suggestions, uh, let me know. As long as it's from the Library of America, I'll, I'll consider looking at them. And then, you know, if I have them, I, I guess I have about a little bit less than half of the entire series in my collection. So, but I'll see. I'll, I'll have to go back to my library and, and, and kind of meditate uh, with my books before making a final decision. So you won't know until I upload what the next series will exactly look like, but I'll, I'll tell you then. In the meantime, let me know what you think of Billy Budd or Melville as a whole, Melville's career, um, his later writings, everything from Pierre to, to Billy Budd. Yeah, I share your thoughts um, by email or just posting below. Uh, and that'll be all for now. So I'll see you next time with some something. I, I'm not quite sure what it'll be. But uh, in the meantime, if, if you want, you can listen to my Philip K. Dick um, podcast. I'm, I'm moving right along in that series. Should be done with that in the next couple months. Um, so that's it for now. See you next time.